The CAEH Training and Technical Assistance Program is a nonprofit consulting service with a mission to end homelessness. Their goal is to support and accelerate an end to homelessness by providing high quality, accessible, affordable, evidence-based coaching, training, and technical assistance. Choose from established and proven trainings or have something tailored specifically to meet your needs. Visit training.caeh.ca to book your consultation or training today. Meet their dedicated and friendly trainers and find out how you can end homelessness in your community once and for all at training.caeh.ca. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squahomish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to another episode of On the Way Home. With me, as always, is not only uh, communications expert Stefania, but as we've learned, extreme athlete running <laughs> up mountains, <laughs> ten kilometers, what seven up and then three down, taking the hard way up and easy way down. Uh, welcome to the show, Steph. Great to see you again. Good to see you. And I would never use the term athlete to describe myself in my top five adjectives, but that's super sweet. Um, I'm really, really uh, excited for our podcast today. Um, but before, you know, I get started, I, I almost feel like I never ask you, like, how are you, how are you doing? How are things at Blue Door? Good, good. Our uh, Thanks for asking. Our region, it, it, we had a plan uh, just recently, that plan has gone a little sideways as plans do during the pandemic, um, where we, uh, we, we had everyone um, went into one site, a transitional site for two weeks and was to isolate and then they'd go to different sites of supportive housing, emergency housing. Um, and that's great until that site uh, is an outbreak and they can't go there anymore and, and your system's disrupted. So we've had to work through that, um, wow. but Considering we're we're a year and a half in, and that's the first time that's happened, um, you know, I, I think we're we're pretty lucky. Yeah, well, and hopefully vaccines are are making their way quickly to your to your folks there. Yeah, well, as I so as I mentioned, just to circle back, then I'm I'm really really excited for today's podcast guest, uh, who is sort of a master of podcasts himself, um, Garth Mullins, who's with us today, is a drug user activist and award-winning radio documentarian. He is host and executive producer of the Crackdown podcast, where drug users cover the drug war as war correspondents. This is Garth's second overdose crisis. He used injection heroin for over a decade and is now on methadone. He is a member of the amazing Vancouver area, area network of drug users and is also a trade union organizer and musician. Welcome to the show, Garth. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Garth, I know uh, Steph has been talking about having you on for a long time now. She said, I think you were one of her, when we were talking about guests, she said, we have to have Garth on. He's incredible. Um, and the Crackdown podcast is truly uh, so inspiring and this powerful storytelling and storytelling uh, is so important. So we're, we're really grateful to have you on the show. Um, let's let's take a, a step back and let's talk about how the, if you can share with us how the Crackdown podcast started and 
where you see it going? Um, <clears throat> I guess the, the way it got started was uh, we all uh, on the podcast, or most of us <clears throat> have worked together for a long time as uh, drug user activists and um, around the Vancouver area network of drug users. And we kept seeing media representations of our struggle and ourselves that were really um, <clears throat> dissatisfying and sometimes just like straight up insulting. And we thought maybe it would be better to tell our own stories. And the the typical journalism coverage that we saw was not nuanced enough also about the problem. So they mischaracterized us, but they mischaracterized the problem of the overdose crisis. And uh, so we started working with um, this guy, Dr. Ryan McNeil, who does research into the harms of the drug war. And we realized that our own stories and experiences really dovetailed with some of what his research was turning up. And we thought that combining those two things together could bring a little uh, land a punch a bit better. Absolutely. And I think the podcast came at such a critical time, but I, of course, want to acknowledge that it's also very much a product of its time too. You know, recently, BC, as you know, well know, celebrated a terrible anniversary, five years since uh, the province declared an emergency on the rising deaths due to the poison drug supply. And yet the death tolls can death toll continues to climb. Um, the day of the anniversary, the Drug User Liberation Front had an amazing idea. Can you tell us a little bit about it? And also, um, did Dolph kind of, um, was it something that was sort of building for a while or was it uh, in reaction to that five-year anniversary coming up? Yeah, sure. Um, the On the 14th of April, which was five years after the overdose crisis was officially declared in BC, so after 7,000 people had died following the 2016 announcement by the government that they're going to treat this like an emergency, um, we did hold uh, this action where we, we gave out basically tested, clean, um, you know, meth, rock, and heroin so that we sourced and we checked through a uh, mass spectrometer and uh, gave it out to people for free to show that really uh, – managing a safe supply of of drugs is not as hard as the government is making out to be and we we did this because that's the only way we ever win things and i think that it's the only way that most people ever win things uh like for example safe injection sites in vancouver and in this con on this continent came from law breaking so we opened uh, our own underground illegal safe injection sites first this is the same way that needle distribution started to happen you know, people broke the law and handed out uh, new syringes to drug users way back in the day um, before it was allowed, before it was official. So we're, we're sort of uh, walking in a long tradition of civil disobedience and social movement organizing. And to, in, in so far as we're doing that, it really did uh, have a long planning horizon. We did a small version of it last year just to see how it would go. Uh, and we've been talking about this, about direct action safe supply for a few years. But uh, I guess this anniversary gave us the opportunity to do something when the government was doing nothing. 
Yeah, and and about safe supply. So as as you note, um, with the government in particular, it doesn't seem like there was any mention of it in the provincial budget budget that was recently announced uh, here in April. And it seems to be a battle at the federal level as well, as you know. Um, and like you mentioned, safe injection sites started off as a form of protest, but also to to save people's lives, and are now becoming legalized and implemented across the country slowly but surely with of course, fights along the way. But how do you see, just to kind of build on what you were saying, how do you see safe supply as that next wave being being rolled out? Well, let's look at safe injection sites. Uh, you know, we opened the underground illegal ones here in 1995, I think. That's when that campaign started. Um, and eventually we got insight. And then Insight was sort of uh, the subject of a battle from the federal government and, and other quarters for uh, for a long time. And then in 2016, um, as we were into the the official overdose crisis out here, but it had been happening for, for a few years that we were noticing, um, we had to do it illegally again. And and so did people like uh, Zoe Dodd in Moss Park in Toronto. So even, even after that 20 years, um, there still wasn't a clear path. So uh, safe supply has got to be much, much faster than that. Um, there's, there's, no, there's no choice. And uh, you know, we're already years into um, where this idea could have been implemented. So for example, they did heroin trials out here uh, 15 years ago, a couple of them called Naomi and Salome. And um, those proved incredibly effective, but we still don't have any more people on prescription heroin than we did for those original trials. So there's, you know, around a hundred people that were in those trials that have got grandfathered in, but nobody else. So uh, imagine if we had rolled that out, if our governments had rolled that out 15 years ago across British Columbia or even Canada, we might not have a fentanyl overdose crisis at all. So uh, you can kind of see that, that um, the urgency of this is felt by us, but not by the government. And I don't know what the next wave is going to bring because you're right. Uh, the provincial government of the British Columbia's uh, government uh, budget for this year didn't really talk about safe supply. It talked a lot about treatment and treatment beds. And this, uh, this is kind of like a private sector, mostly idea. It's unregulated in British Columbia. So you go to a recovery house and maybe there's regulations like a building code that says how wide the hallway has to be, but there's no regulation about what they do to give you treatment. So this is just like any kind of bullshit that the operator wants to run in there. And um, that it's still the case uh, all these years in. And so the idea of treatment beds is something for voters. It's this um, dream, this unicorn, imaginary rainbow land of wouldn't it be great if drug users were instead of, uh, you know, out in the world with a needle in their arm, tucked away in bed with maybe a cup of hot cocoa or something like that. There's this lovely idea for voters, but the, the truth in reality is a wild west mess. Uh, so when, when you see budgets pivoting away from safe supply and towards treatment beds, that's a sop to voters. That's a sop to people who just don't have the time or maybe inclination to get deeply into the implications of this stuff. Well, let's talk more about that. You've given uh, all sorts of examples where this has worked worked well. Is uh, what, what's what's the barrier to stop safe supply from happening? Why is this not happening? Is it just about fear or voters or what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's about history. Like things don't change when 
uh, the right leader gets the right report on their desk, you know, sees the right data or evidence or study or gets enough pictures of dead children sent to them. Um, leaders give stuff when we twist arms and um, embarrass them and raise the political costs of them doing nothing. So I guess that's it. I mean, the, the people who are running British Columbia and Canada and pretty much everywhere else are gutless cowards right now. And they don't want to risk even one vote for um, our lives. So uh, that's where we are right now. And so the challenge comes back to drug user activists. We have to be better organized uh, to pressure the government to embarrass and force them into action. And I mean, that's how, like I was saying before, that's how Insight, that's how Safe Injection got here. It'll be the same way this time. So if you, if you had that decision-making power, if you were kind of making those those decisions, you can make something happen. What, what's the one big thing you'd do to fight the, the the crisis right now? I mean, the the if you think about the last year in Canada, we have talked about vaccines and COVID for for a long time, you know, and the vaccine is the key to everything. And how is it being developed? And is it being rolled out? And we didn't have one for most of the pandemic, and now we do. Well, we've had the vaccine to the overdose crisis for 100 years or as long as there's been prohibition. It's in every drugstore in the world. It's just the same drugs that people are doing on the street except for a regulated, known, safe version of them or safer version of them. Uh, so it's just the rules. You know, it's just the, the, this stuff is like three feet away from us just behind the counter. Um, and so we just have to change the rules to be able to get it. That's the That's the – the quickest thing I would do, but I'd also, if I was this magical decision maker, I'd decriminalize drug users and get police right out of the equation because they're in there uh, tampering with everything, making everybody's lives uh, miserable, um, using the drug war as a pretext for some pretty nasty uh, racist policing and um, uh, uh, preventing people from um, being sort of members of society. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project, or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Yeah, absolutely. And Garth, as you know, I, I want to bring it back to um, the work that you do at Vandu as, as a peer with the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, because it's an amazing uh, group of folks who really are like that um, epitome of that grassroots movement, making things happen for the community to save, save their neighbors and their friends and family. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about that and also your experience it from, uh, as you know, uh, from using street drugs to methadone. You know, can you share a bit more about how you're able to get to that point and why more aren't uh, given methadone? Like what's, what are the barriers for folks to kind of access that, that treatment or sorry, that for, for methadone? Yeah, that methadone question is a little complicated. So I, I did uh, get my dope habit in a different era. My habit was heroin, like just old school heroin, you know. Um, and for a lot of people back in the day, you could come across from old school heroin to old school methadone 
and you'd be all right. But a lot of a lot has changed since then. In the last, uh, you know, uh, six or eight years, the drugs have gotten a lot stronger, and the methadone, at least for a lot of people in Canada, has gotten weaker. So they started switching people to this branded formulation instead of the old generic, the old school generic methadone that had been around here since the 50s or 60s. They changed everyone to this uh, branded formulation that didn't work as well. So you got stronger drugs up here, and then you got a weaker methadone, and that gap gets a lot bigger. And I mean, methadone never worked for everybody. There were, there were you know, always 10 or 15% of people who needed something more. Well, now you have a lot more people that need something more. On top of that, Canada has never had a very accessible methadone system. We have a lot smaller proportion of people, of drug users on methadone than other countries like European countries where they got, you know, like 80% of people who are drug users are getting methadone or something. Here, it's a lot lower. You know, in BC, it's like less than 20%, I think. Uh, so we do things like, uh, you know, there's barriers to getting on that people get bumped off. They don't start you very high. Uh, they piss test you all the time. So it's kind of humiliating. You know, when I was in Portugal, uh, just doing a part of the podcast episode, we rolled up to a methadone van where they were handing out methadone to drug users and they, they handed me out a cup, you know, and uh, I was like, oh, no, no, I, you know, I'm on, I'm, I'm taking my script from Canada, but I, but I was just like, they just want people to get this stuff. They don't want to screw around, you know. I mean, I don't know if they would have like fully like here, here you go, drink it down. But I mean, they were very permissive about this, and they recognized that the harms of giving someone a small amount of methadone who looked like a drug user is a lot less than just leaving somebody to uh, use the street supply. So I mean, it's it's mostly because there's this sort of uh, if you go into a methadone clinic, it's this different experience, you know. You are treated with suspicion. It is this strange intersection between something that's supposed to be healthcare and something that's punishment and criminalization. You're not trusted, and it's a, a, an odd experience, right? It's it's like that we have always feared giving people drugs. So methadone is essentially the same molecule, very similar to heroin and all the other opioids. It's an opioid molecule, you know. It's like a nicotine patch, um, and we have held that a lot more tightly and been a lot more stingy with methadone than with just about anything else. Uh, so, uh, I mean, back in the day, it was still stingy and it's still barriers to lots of people. Now that the drugs are stronger and a lot of the methadone is weaker, it's just, it's a, it's a losing battle there, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for walking us through that. And yeah, I'm glad you touched on Portugal because there is a lot of incredible work happening there that I just feel like it's right there. The models exist. This would be really amazing, especially with the crisis right now. Um, and I think if that safe supply and decriminalization of drugs existed together, there would be this incredible cascading effect that would impact, you know, our prison system, homelessness, and just so much more. Um, and we obviously need both. So do you think that if we did have decriminalization, it would bolster efforts, efforts to get a safe supply going? Or do do you feel like all of these sort of things need to be advocated for at once sort of under that harm reduction umbrella? Yeah, I don't know if it's a necessary prerequisite, you know, um, <clears throat> you could just dis, dis like that right now the cops don't have any business searching me and taking my methadone off me because it's legally prescribed. So there are ways uh, under the continued criminalization system of making steps towards safe supply. I do think you need to do both, you know. Um, 
policing budgets use up a huge amount of money. And so defunding the police should be part of decriminalization, you know, taking all the money they spend, all the money that the country spends on courts and cops and jails and um, putting that towards something better, putting that towards housing or daycare or whatever, uh, that would make a huge difference. Absolutely, it would. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about harm reduction. Um, to me, I don't know, harm reduction just makes sense. Uh, and I, I thought in our sector, it, it was coming along quite nicely. But when we look across the country, not so much, right? In Saskatchewan, the government refuses to fund the province's only overdose prevention site. In Alberta, they cut funding from the site that operated in Lethbridge. And that, that was the busiest in the country. What would you say to policy, policymakers and decision makers to make them understand how harm reduction is a cornerstone to the drug war and epidemic? Even in Vancouver, it's uh, there's the war continues. You know, uh, just last year there was a safe injection site proposed for outside of the downtown east side, which there really are not um, much harm reduction facilities that are visible outside of the downtown east side of Vancouver, and it wasn't very far. You know, it was just in downtown Vancouver, about a kilometer away, um, and people howled and screamed and ran election campaigns around this. They freaked out. Um, so uh, like the, the war isn't won here either. Uh, and I, I think, um, you know, if people are denying harm reduction in 2021, they're just radically out of touch. You know, harm reduction is like first aid. It's like triage, right? Like you would deny someone triage at, a, at the scene of a motor accident. It's, um, it's ludicrous. And at some point, you know, I've gone around and around on this a lot. At some point, I do not know what to tell people. Um, at some point, I think the challenge becomes not convincing them, but exposing their real motivations. A lot of people, uh, right-wing city councilors in Vancouver, police, whatever, will talk about how harm reduction isn't quite effective enough, that we need something more effective, or that we need something better for drug users. And this is bullshit. They actually just hate us, and it becomes clear after you talk to them for a while. And so part of, the, part of the project is to draw out people's true motivations. And if they're going to hate drug users, which some people are willing to have the guts to do and just stand up and declare it, if they're going to do that, then let's shine a light. Let's just let everyone stand and judge. If you don't care that people die, that's great. Be proud of that statement. Stand by it, and then we'll just – we'll split the opposition of harm reduction, you know? Yeah, and I think that that brings us to the point where I just want everyone to listen to the Crackdown podcast. So where can people go if they're interested in learning more and hearing the stories directly from the folks um, at Vandu and beyond who are leading this work? Um, yeah, where can folks find out more? We're on all the places where you regularly get podcasts, but uh, we're also, our website is crackdownpod.com and you can follow us on Twitter at crackdownpod dot com no at crackdown pod that's it on twitter yeah well garth thank you so much for coming on and sharing your passion and uh for all your hard work i know sometimes it it must seem like you're moving backwards but keep pushing forward we we, we need leaders like you to uh make real uh real change happen thanks i gotta say you know it's a it's a privilege to get to sit behind the mic and talk to y'all um, but uh, I, I'm really just part of a movement. You know, I'm a I'm a soldier in in the drug war, um, and I I, you know, we decide where to fight and how to fight together. So all the things that I've talked to you about today, decriminalization, defunding, safe supply, all that these are not 
ideas I had in my head. These are um, ideas the movement has come up with. And it's my job as part of it to help communicate the ideas and help fight for them. But I'm just, uh, you know, I'm a bit player in this compared to some of the leaders that we've had across um, North America and Europe. And I just, uh, you know, I look for what my job is. And I just happen to be someone who can make radio. And so this is my, this is my little bit. But I have learned so much, including learned the words to have this conversation from people like Dean Wilson and Laura Shaver and uh, Tracy Morrison and Wade Crawford. Um, two of these people are gone now, but uh, they taught me how to talk about my own drug use, how to talk about this life without being ashamed or without looking away or without overqualifying your words just to confidently speak your truth. And um, not only did they give me the tools to speak about this properly on the mic, but to liberate my own life from all the baggage that you have to carry around uh, that when you feel so full of shame. So uh, I just want to shout out to the people that we make this show with um, that are, that have brought me along, you know. Absolutely. Well, we are so glad you are doing your part and you humbly say that, but it's a big part and it's appreciated. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. For sure. Thanks, Garth. All right, we'll talk soon. <laughs> Bye. Yeah, Garth Mullins is um, also just one of my favorite humans. And I had the privilege of working with him a bit uh, when I was at Megaphone, which I know I talk a lot about, but he wrote uh, on the drug war and, and uh, the work that was happening in the downtown east side. And so when he launched Crackdown, I was so excited. And it is really, um, it is really an amazing storytelling um, and just like educational podcast to listen to. So I was, yeah, really happy to have him on the show today. Yeah, he's so, so passionate and it must be so difficult at times mm -hmm. not to get discouraged, right? When you, you think you're, you're taking a few steps forward and then we take it, you know, four steps back. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think with, uh, you know, with his talent and him sharing information and, uh, doing it so passionately and it was, you know, so much meaning behind it. Um, you know, I, we, we've got to keep him moving forward and, and, and uh, fighting this battle. I think more people have to step up to support. Absolutely. And I really appreciated when he um, mentioned the names of like his mentors yeah. and noting that he is one of many who are in this fight um, because there are so many people losing their lives and and more folks are dying from overdose than than COVID-19, not to denote that the pandemic isn't um, the serious health crisis, but the overdose crisis is just as if not more yeah. serious. Um, and it's the stigma and the misinformation that's just stopping those solutions from happening. Yeah, well said. I In a past podcast, when on Out of the Blue, I remember uh, Mayor Dan Carter um, from Oshawa was almost in tears talking about that. So he, he just doesn't understand why mm -hmm. the resources are not put behind uh, th this crisis and why more Canadians don't see it as the crisis uh, that it is taking you know, thousands of Canadian lives every year. Yeah. Yeah. So it's folks like Gar Garth. There are, you know, the storytellers, the people, the protesters, the advocates who are really just doing that important work. And I, you know, when they were handing out clean tested drugs in the downtown east side on that five year anniversary, I was like, just, you know, reminiscent of like, this is how safe injection sites started. And it's once again, drug users taking a stand, protecting, you know, um, 
them and their community. And hopefully it is a lot faster to get safe supply and decriminalization um, passed and going uh, than safe injection sites. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for bringing Garth on the show, a wonderful guest as mm -hmm. always. And I'll remind you to listen to this show, listen to past episodes, subscribe, and I'll remind Steph, uh, our athlete extraordinaire, remember to stretch after every run, you know, <laughs> you're still young, but if you start the, if you start that now, it right. will pay off later. Trust me, I can barely move. <laughs> well, Michael, thank you so much. And I'll see you next week. See you then. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.